Thank you for downloading this message from Roots Community Church. We pray that you are encouraged by the word. If you are looking for more information, please visit us at rccphoenix.com. So we're going to continue on our series, the week two of our series, from um, What God Wants. So last week we, <clears throat> um, we were reading in Micah chapter 6, and we're going to be there again. Um, let's just do a quick little recap of where we were, and I won't ask you to yell out any answers in case you didn't, you don't remember the ones from last week. I'm sure everybody remembers them, right, because you wrote them down to go home. <clears throat> but, the, but Israel has turned its back on God again. They have wandered away from the Lord, and they are now um, full-on just um, worshiping other gods, other idols. One of the ways that they have that they that the Lord is displeased with them is He told them not to intermarry with other nations, and they disobeyed Him. They did that, and that's not because God is some kind of you know you know He's some bigot. He doesn't want you know nations intermarrying. Those nations worshipped false gods and false idols, and so He didn't want that to come into His children. Well, they did it, and guess what happened? Exactly what God said. And that's just a little sidebar right here. Whatever he says will happen will, in fact, happen outside of what our knowledge or our desire wants to be. We don't want it to happen maybe when he said something. Don't do this or this is going to happen. It will happen. And Israel has found that out firsthand. They are worshiping other idols. They are carving other. They are worshiping other gods. They are carving idols and worshiping them. They're actually getting into child sacrifice, believe it or not. <clears throat> and so the Lord has had it. He said, you know what? Um, he's going to send Micah, his prophet, to say, I'm going to let all this, I'm going to set all this stuff straight, and your punishment is coming, Israel, if you don't repent and turn back from where it is. So Israel is starting to ask, what do you want me to do? Do you want me to sacrifice thousands of rams, you know, 10,000 rivers of oil? Do you want me to do all this crazy stuff to appease you, God? And he says, no, I want three things from you. And last week we talked about the first one. And those fir that first instruction, and it's the first line in your notes there, is do what is right. God is telling Israel, I want you to do what is right. So <clears throat> um, we can't, we, we talked a little bit last week about we can't do what's right if we don't know right from wrong. It's the next line in your notes. We can't do right if we don't know right from wrong. <clears throat> and we can know right from wrong by continually reading Scripture. And that's a third line right there in your notes, Scripture. So we're going to discuss today the second um, instruction that God gave in Micah chapter 6. So let's read our, our passage of Scripture again together. Ready? <clears throat> Micah 6, 1 through 8. Listen to what the Lord is saying. Stand up and state your case to me. This is uh, Micah talking to the children of Israel on behalf of the Lord. Let the mountains and hills be called to witness your complaints. And now, O mountains, listen to the Lord's complaint. He has a case against his people. He will bring charges against Israel. O oh, my people, what have I done to you? What have I done to make you tired of me? <clears throat> Answer me, for I brought you out of Egypt and redeemed you from slavery. I sent Moses, Arian, and Miriam to help you. Don't you remember, my people, how King Balak of Moab tried to have you, um, tried to have you cursed and how Balaam, son of Beor, blessed you and said, and remember your journey from the Acacia Grove to Gilgal when I, the Lord, did everything I could to teach you about my faithfulness? What can we bring to the Lord? Now this is Israel asking Micah, what can we bring to the Lord? Should we bring him burnt offerings? Should we bow 
before God most high with offering of yearling calves? Should we offer him thousands of rams and 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Should we sacrifice our firstborn children to pay for our sins? And this is the part we're focusing on. No, O people, the Lord has told you what is good and what he requires of you, to do what is right, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. We're going to focus this second week of, this, um, of the series on the second instruction that God gave the children of Israel through Micah. And that's the next line in your notes. It's love, mercy. <clears throat> love, mercy. I don't know about you, but um, I grew up in the pre-internet cell phone you know, age, and we used to have to go outside to entertain ourselves. Um, we were forced to go outside and be home when the streetlight was on, you know what I mean? Like we were... We were outside sweating. Um, people, you know, I, I'll stop. But um, we used to play this game as little kids called Mercy. You remember this game? So if you don't remember this game, so um, you would stand one person for another. I think it was mostly guys, right? Like it was mostly like stupid guy games, right? So the girls are like, what are you Oh, you did. Okay, cool. <clears throat> Thank you for not letting us just be the, the weaker species again. So, um, so we, uh, we would stand in front of other guys, and we put our hands out like this, and they'd interlock fingers. And then when you said go you would try to like curl up somebody's fingers or bend their hand in a certain way or squeeze their fingers to where it was just this massive amount of pain. And when you couldn't take the pain anymore, or when they're about to break your fingers or your knuckles started popping, you'd go, mercy! And then they would like, they would let you go. And so if you cried out for mercy, it meant that the other person won, you lost, and they had to stop doing what they're doing. And when we talk about a lot of these things like mercy, and forgiveness, we can think, um, it, it can take on kind of a negative connotation. Like if we need mercy, somehow we lost. We lost somehow because we actually needed mercy. But what I want to do tonight is I'm going to go look at the definitions of mercy. I want to get away from our cultural, um, cultural influence on the word. And I want to look at what um, the English definition is and the word in the original language means real quick, okay? So the definition of mercy, and it's the next line in your notes, it's from the English dictionary. It means compassion or forgiveness. <clears throat> forgiveness, that next line in your notes there. Shown towards someone whom it is within one's power to punish or harm. This means that somebody has the ability to punish or harm you, and you're asking them, that person who's about to inflict the pain on you, to get, have compassion or forgiveness. So the Hebrew word for mercy is chesed, and if you are a Hebrew scholar and I said that wrong, um, that's okay, <laughs> Which, because the definition is more important here. It means goodness, that's the next line of your notes, goodness, kindness, and faithfulness. Goodness, kindness, and faithfulness. <clears throat> and so as I, as I was getting into my study about this word mercy, and since we're supposed to love mercy, and that's an instruction of the Lord, I started to look around and say, where else in the Bible is this word, does this word mercy appear? Trying to get a, a broad picture, a whole picture, you know, uh, the, the full scope of what mercy really is. And it led me to a very familiar place that I wasn't expecting. And it was in the Old Testament account of Jonah. So I'm sure uh, most of you guys, you know, remember the story of Jonah or you've at least heard part of it. You know, he's supposed to go to Nineveh. Because the people in Nineveh are, are evil. You're supposed to go there and tell them to repent. It's a side note, but I thought that was really, uh, really interesting that God's telling people who are not his people to stop acting up. 
I thought that was very interesting. <clears throat> Other nations besides Israel, hey, cut it out. You're doing things wrong, and I want you to stop it. So he's supposed to go there. So what does he do? Does he obey? Nope. Jumps on a ship and literally goes the other direction, the opposite direction. If you saw these places on the map, it would be like, I want you to go to Flagstaff. No, I'm going to Tucson. Literally opposite directions. And so he's, he went to this. He was trying to go to a town called Tarshish. Um, he disobeys God. A big storm blows in. He confesses to the people that are on the boat with him. Hey, this is, you know, it's my fault. So they heave his behind overboard, right? He gets into the water. The storm stops, but a big fish eats him. Three days later, you know, the, the fish spits him out on dry land, and the dry land he's at is Nineveh. So you're going to get there one way or another, so you might as well just do it the first time the easy way instead of sitting in the belly of a fish or some nastiness <clears throat> going back there. So he didn't want to do this, so Jonah, the next line of your notes, he eventually went to the city of Nineveh and preached the message of the Lord. The people, the people in Nineveh, repented. <clears throat> they repented of their wrongdoing, and the Lord spared the people of Nineveh. Now, that's kind of where the story stopped for me as a kid in children's church or growing up in church. That's where the story kind of stopped. But that's really only like the first two chapters. There's two more chapters after, after all that in the book of Jonah that are fascinating to me. And the story continues because Jonah is not happy. He is not happy that the people of Nineveh have repented. He's actually upset about it. Let's, let's read in Jonah chapter 4. So this change of plans greatly upset Jonah, and he became very angry. What are the change of plans? He wants the Ninevites to get God's judgment. They're repenting, and now they don't. So this is a big change for him. <clears throat> so he complained to the Lord about it. Didn't I say before I left home that you would do this, Lord? That's why I ran away to Tarshish. I knew that you were a merciful, same word, and compassionate God, slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. You are eager to turn back from destroying people. Now look at the level of drama that's in Jonah right here. Just kill me now, Lord. I'd rather be dead than alive if what I predicted will not happen. The Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry about this? Then Jonah went out to the east side of the city and made a shelter to sit under as he waited to see what would happen to the city of Nineveh. He's waiting for him to get it. And the Lord God arranged a leafy plant to grow there. And soon it spread its broad leaves over Jonah's head, shading him from the sun. <clears throat> this eased his discomfort. And Jonah was very grateful for the plant. But God also arranged for a worm. The next morning at dawn, the worm ate through the stem of the plant, so it withered away. As, and as the sun grew hot, God arranged for a scorching east wind to blow on Jonah. The sun beat down on his head until he grew faint and wished to die. The level of drama is now going to go up even, even more. Death is certainly better than living like this, he exclaimed. Then God said to Jonah, Is it right for you to be angry because the plant died? Yes, Jonah retorted, even angry enough to die. Then the Lord said, you feel sorry about the plant, though you did nothing to put it there. It came quickly and died quickly. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people living in spiritual darkness, not to mention all the animals. Shouldn't I feel sorry for such a great city? 
this is where the book of Jonah ends. This is the last, last verse and last chapter. It's a question. And side note, if the Lord ever asks you a question, it's not because he don't know the answer. Every time God questions people in his word or us directly, it's because he's trying to reveal something that is in the heart of the one being questioned. I'm going to say that again. If God asks you a question, because he's trying to reveal something that's in the heart of the one who's being asked the question. And if God asks you a question, you should know that there's probably a dark spot or a blind spot or something in your heart that may need dealing with. As I read the story, I thought, why didn't Jonah want to go to Nineveh? <clears throat> and so I started looking into Nineveh and tried to get some history on it. And what I found was pretty interesting. Nineveh is a very old city. Historians today believe Nineveh was one of the oldest known cities they've uncovered in archaeology. They feel like they've got enough evidence to represent more than 3,000 years of existence. Um, next line in your notes, it's believed that, uh, the, that it, the Nineveh was founded by Nimrod, <coughs> N-I-M-R-O-D. Nimrod, my dad called me out when I was a kid when I was in acting, but that's not what he's talking about. It's actually the man, Nimrod, the historical man. And was built near the area of the area of the Tower of Babel. <clears throat> so remember the Tower of Babel, where they were going to build a, a structure all the way to the heavens. It was a tower. God confused their language. This city is either on that same spot or near that same spot um, geographically. <clears throat> um, Nineveh. Next line of your notes was one of three capital cities of the nation of Assyria. Nineveh is one of the three capital cities of the nation of Syria. Um, they, they didn't have three capitals at the same time. Different times throughout history, there was a different capital city. At this point in time, Nineveh was the capital city. And the Assyrians were historically enemies, next line, enemies of Israel. <clears throat> so they conquered and occupied parts of Israel. And some historians say that they were engaged in the raping and pillaging of the surrounding nations, including Israel. This is not a figurative term. Literal, they would go in. They were the kind of like, you know, the, the, the big nation. They would go in, throw their weight around. They would literally destroy things, kill people, rape the people, and they would, um, they would pillage the things that they had accumulated or possessed, land or animals or whatever, and they would take it back and leave them in shame. Um, when they conquered certain people, they had a certain thing that they would do, not to everyone, but as a, as a way to show their dominance in a, in a victory of a battle. Um, the Assyrians would take large hooks and they would drive them through the nose of some of the conquered people. And then they would knock them to the ground and try to drag them back to their city or through their city with these giant hooks that were rung through their nose um, to show the great victory they had done. They were, they were um, the Assyrians, the next line in your notes, were bloody and vicious. They were the bloody and vicious bully on the block, in quotes. Not Jenny from the block, but bully from the block. <laughs> and, um, and with this history, you can now see why, it, and it can be easily understood why Jonah and the Israelites hated them. So you got to think that these people, including Jonah, they have to have known somebody who was impacted when the Assyrians came in and, and uh, would attack Israel. For a little while, 
They actually conquered the city of Jerusalem. They occupied it for a long time. So you have to think that these guys are walking in, imposing their will. There's people who have died that have been taken slaves, that have been embarrassed by dragging them through the streets with this giant hook in their nose. And so this happened continually over a long period of time. So you can kind of see why Israel doesn't really like the Assyrians and Jonah doesn't want to go there. He's got memories, vivid memories of him, his family, and his people being done wrong. He's got vivid memories, and he does not want to go there and tell them to repent. Why? The next line of your notes, Jonah knew God would forgive them if they repented. He knew. He knew God would forgive them. How do we know this? Let's look at verse 2 in that chapter 4 again. Didn't This is Jonah talking to the Lord. Didn't I say this before I left home that you would do this, Lord? That is why I ran away to Tarshish. I knew that you were a merciful and compassionate God, slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. You are eager to turn back from destroying people. Isn't that such a very interesting quote? Because today, people who are kind of stand in opposition of the gospel talk about how brutal God was in the Old Testament, but here, one of his prophets is actually declaring he's slow to get angry, filled with unfailing love, eager to turn back from destroying people. It's funny how people can frame a narrative, what they want to say, but when you actually read the book, you find the truth. <clears throat> we have to be people that are mired in Scripture. Jonah was upset that God forgave and showed mercy to the enemies of Israel. Jonah knew, the next line of your notes is, Jonah knew if he went there, his personal enemies would be forgiven and escape the wrath of God because Jonah knew the character of the God he served. Jonah knew the character of the God he served. I've got a couple questions I'm going to ask us. I don't want you to answer now, but just contemplate in your heart or later on when, you, when you're um, during this week. Do we know the character of the God we serve? Are we, do we know the character of the God we serve? Or have we taken our cues from the culture, what other people have told us about God, what other preachers have said about God, but have we taken the time to get into His Word and listen to his voice, and spend time in prayer, and deny ourselves, and grow closer to him. Do have we taken the time to do that and know the character of our God? Jonah knew the character of his God, and he labeled him merciful, the exact same word that Micah is now using almost a hundred years later to say hundred years difference in time between these two events in Micah and Jonah. And he's saying, I want my people to love mercy. I want them to love mercy. God clearly sets an example here. It's next line of your notes. <clears throat> and is instructing his people to follow his lead. Follow his lead. And show mercy as he shows mercy. And to forgive as he forgives. Jonah don't want to hear nothing about this mercy. 
He don't want to hear none about this compassion, this forgiveness. I got people who've been done wrong. I have been done wrong. My nation has been done wrong. I want these suckers to pay. But refusing to give mercy, next on your notes, refusing to give mercy is an indirect way of indicating someone who has done us wrong doesn't deserve understanding or forgiveness. When we refuse to forgive, when we, forgive, when we refuse to show mercy, when we refuse to be kind to those who have hurt us, to let them off the hook, so to speak, our hook, we're basically saying, you don't deserve it. From my, where I sit, you don't deserve it. And that's exactly Jonah's position. So now let me ratchet this. Let me, let me just um, run right up into your wheelhouse with this next question, all right? Is there anyone in your life that has done you wrong that you need to show mercy and forgiveness to? Has every relationship all in your life been just peachy and golden and not with any struggle? If that's you, um, you're lying. But if you're not, I would like to see you out there and we're going to Xerox copy everything you've done in your life and sell it to the world. <coughs> um, you may be thinking about somebody who's done you wrong. And guess what? You may be right that they did you wrong. You also may think about that person and say, yeah, but Matt, the person who did me wrong doesn't deserve mercy. There's a story of a young French soldier who deserted Napoleon's army, but who within a matter of hours was caught by his own troops. To discourage soldiers from abandoning their post, the penalty for desertion was death. The young soldier's mother heard what had happened, and he went to plead, and she had went to plead with Napoleon to spare the life of her son. Napoleon heard her plea, but pointed out that because of the serious nature of the crime her son had committed, he clearly didn't deserve mercy. The mother of the French soldier in the story said this. This is what I want you to remember. It's the next line in your notes. I know he doesn't deserve mercy, the mother answered. It wouldn't be mercy if he deserved it. It wouldn't be mercy if he deserved it. Next line in your notes. Those who refuse to forgive either think they have never needed it or believe they are in a position, a position to cast judgment on others. I'm going to do a series on eventually in the future of the things that we say culturally that aren't scripture, that we think are scripture. Like, you know, or they mean something different. Like, you can't judge me. Judge not lest you be judged. Well, you're actually supposed to judge fruit and make a judgment about the fruit of someone's life. What they're talking about, what that scripture is implying, judge not that you be not judged by the same way that you have judged other people is this way. I'm in a position to cast judgment on others. I am in a position to cast judgment on others and we're not. Scripture warns us, do not take that position because if we're going to cast judgment on others the same way that we process that judgment and we lay it out on others is how we're going to receive judgment. 
That's the definition of that scripture. So when we look at being unforgiving and unmerciful, let's take a clear look at how these words are defined. Unforgiving. Next line in your notes. Not disposed to forgive or show mercy. Unrelenting. Not allowing for mistakes, carelessness, or weakness. The word unmerciful means merciless, relentless. You won't let it go. Relentless. Severe, cruel, pitiless. Unsparingly great, extreme, or excessive. Excessive is the next line. In, in uh, youth sports... There's something called the mercy rule. Anybody know about the mercy rule? <clears throat> I've never personally experienced that. I'm just kidding. <laughs> but if you don't know what the mercy rule is, it means that if you're up by a certain amount of points, which is typically a bunch, they either stop the game because the other team can't come back and they don't want to embarrass them any further. Or if you're in high school football around here, if you're up by like 40 points or something going into the fourth quarter, they never stop the clock. It doesn't matter if you call a timeout. It doesn't matter if you go out of bounds. They just let the clock keep running because they want the thing to be over sooner than later. They're not trying to embarrass anybody. They call it a mercy rule. <clears throat> so you could be sitting here and going, okay, I hear you, Matt. I got to show forgiveness and mercy to people who've done me wrong. I got gotcha. you. I don't want to do it, but I'm here. I got gotcha. you. Is that what you're trying to communicate? Yes and no. Because that's not the whole story. Micah chapter 6, next line in your notes, doesn't say show mercy. Doesn't say show mercy. Micah chapter 6 says love mercy. Love mercy. When I read that one, I was like, why he got to say love? How come he just can't say show mercy? Do what is right, show mercy to people. That kind of goes together. Do what is right and love mercy. Because when I have to love mercy, things get undefined. They get a little bit unclear. They get messy. It seems simple enough, right, to love mercy. But for it's really problematic for a rule follower like myself. I remember moments where I've been done wrong, and I'm sure this is none of you, so I'll just kind of preach for myself here, but I'll do what I want you to do, you want me to do, God. Like, I'll forgive, but I ain't got to like it. I'll let it go, but I ain't got to like it. Kind of sounds like Jonah. This is the position that Israel finds himself in he is telling, God is telling his own people, do what is right and love mercy. <clears throat> the hearts, their hearts, the people of Israel, have wandered far from the Lord. They're trying to appease him with physical things like rams and oil and sacrificing their children. And they want to give up all this stuff. It's kind of like, all right, I'm guilty. Yeah, just take my stuff. It's all right. But the next line in your notes is very important. Following God is not about behavior modification. 
Following God is not about behavior modification. It's about moving from death to life and having a heart that is a heart transplant that is only submission to Christ can bring. We, as parents, I found myself doing this with my own son, and when he got older, I kind of had to shift. I want them to act right, straighten up, stop crying, act right, do what I just said, obey, take out the trash, you know, all those kind of things, right? And none of you heard those things. It was just my Southern family who did that. But, you know, do all this, get this thing done. And then it, I had to find a moment to shift to say, I'm not about just modifying his behavior. I have to teach and capture his heart. Because we have a plethora of people, young people, who come to church because they go, it's what I was told to do. Got to obey. Got to act right. Don't drink, smoke, or chew, or run with those that do, or whatever the little catching sayings are. You know what I mean? Like, like, don't do all this stuff, and it becomes more about acting right. And then when they grow up and they find leaders who are Christian leaders or pastors or ministry directors, and they see them not acting right, they go, bro, these guys aren't doing right. And you, all you've been telling me is to do right? There's more than just doing right. If changing someone's behavior is the goal, we're not preaching the gospel. Changing the heart is the goal. A transforming of your heart, your mind, moving from death to life, and then from that love and submission to God, these actions grow. We've actually inverted the importance of the gospel to just act right so you don't embarrass me. When it should have been, I can deal with these actions, let's get down to the heart, because if we can change the heart where the root is, then the fruit, those actions, will change. Do we love mercy? Let me uh, position that third question a little bit different. This was a tough one for me. Does my heart rejoice when people who have done me wrong repent and receive mercy from the Lord? That one was a rough one for me. Why? Next line of your notes. Mercy is not a natural posture of our flesh. Letting people off the hook, hoping they don't get theirs, that they don't reap what they sowed, that they don't have the punishment for an unjust action. It's not a natural posture of our flesh. <clears throat> but the truth is, and this is, an ouch to me because it was direct, directly related to me. If we don't love mercy, a part of our heart is not submitted to God. If we don't love mercy, there's a part of our heart that's not submitted to God. <clears throat> Do we need to be reminded of how screwed up we were? How vile, gross, foul, hateful, vengeful, jealous, selfish, greedy, lustful, fill in the blank of whatever it was that you struggle with that we were. I spent a lot of time in my church years trying to do the right thing 
unconcerned about the, po the posture condition of my heart and every one of those things was me. Give mercy because I was told to, yeah. Love mercy, not so much. Pastor and author Max Lucado has a quote I put in your notes there. It says, our Savior kneels down and gazes upon the darkest acts of our lives. <clears throat> but rather than recoil in horror, he reaches out in kindness and says, I can clean that out if you want. And from the basin of his grace, he scoops a palmful of mercy and washes our sin. If you are a believer in Christ, he has done this for you many times. If you're not a believer in Christ, you don't understand why these temporary things you try fill but don't fulfill. Let the Savior do this for you. Submit your life to Him. Find salvation at the foot of the cross. Give your life to Him and watch how He washes from the basin of His grace. He scoops a palmful of mercy and washes our sin. Tell you a quick story and then we'll wrap up these last two notes real quick. It's a personal story. <coughs> um, Nina and I, um, I guess I'll say Kobe too, my son. Um, our entire family had a real rough experience specifically with church. Um, I'll get into it later. I'm not going to bore you with all the details now, but I had three or four of these actually that were rem unbelievably, remarkably similar. <coughs> um, but the last one was um, we had a bunch of hurt. And just know that the person who did us wrong did a doozy. Lied, yep. Stole, yep. Backstab, yep. Manipulate, yep. You can fill in the blank and probably be right. <coughs> Some of the things that we experienced. The details don't matter because um, they were just, just understand they were very deep wounds and hurts. Very deep. Um, we, after we decided, hey, we can't be here. We have to follow the Lord and exit where we were and we would sit in our room months and even a year afterwards and we would just be like just almost bleeding in our words I don't know if that makes sense but the hurt was just coming out of me all the time it was just out it would just pour out of me all the time <clears throat> I couldn't talk about anything without going back to my hurt I couldn't joke without it being like some sarcastic dig at where we'd come from you know and it was just really really rough didn't realize the toll it took on us but it was a big one big one I would sit at work sometimes or drive into the office or sit at home and I would just think man you can't have that position and act that way you about to get it bro and the disgusting but part but true truth is I was waiting for him to get it I wanted to be vindicated I wanted to be justified I wanted everybody else to see what I had seen because God showed me much stuff and then told me to shut my mouth and I wasn't gonna be the one to talk about it it was tough because there's moments where I'd be like look I'll just set this straight now 
and I would just sit there and there'd be times where I just asked the Lord incorrectly a hundred percent wrong it's on me and God you got to do something about this dude <clears throat> I was waiting for him to get it but the longer I sat with the Lord and the more I prayed and the more I got into his word the more the hard question that the Lord proposed to me was asked. Let me deal with him. And you move on. Kind of hard for me to move on when I got hurt here, God, and I'm waiting for this dude to get his. God, I, this is why I didn't want to go to Nineveh. I went the other way to Tarshish on purpose. Because I know if I let this go, it's probably going to be some forgiveness that goes on with this, and I ain't down with that. <laughs> Forget all that. Bump all that. I'll, dude, I'll, I'll take the three days in the whale. I mean, like, in the fish's gut. Just go handle it with him. Go, that, go deal with it with that person. And the longer I spent with the Lord, the more he began to take portions of my heart and turn my attention away from what happened to me. To why it happened. Why does bad stuff happen? Why does hurtful things come up? Why do people that we love and trust and respect and look up to or whatever it is, how, why in the world do we have these moments where we have hurt from them? Why? Because that person who's hurting you has a portion of their heart that is not submitted to Christ. If they were acting in accordance with God's word and how they were designed to be and how God created them to be and they were following his instructions, they would not treat you this way. And it, for me, it took the stinger out. It wasn't personal anymore. It was the action of someone who had an unsubmitted portion of their heart. And if I could look at my response to how I was treated... I had to admit there were some unsubmitted portions of my own heart that really wanted him to experience some measure of pain that I did. Doesn't mean there weren't ripple effects. Doesn't mean that God didn't have to help me get through things. Nope. Didn't just be like, oh yeah, it's great. No. Nope. But the, the day I realized God had changed my heart was the day I stopped asking him to punish the person who had hurt me. And I prayed that that person would come to a submitted place to him. That that person would find salvation. That that person would find brokenness. Because I'm broken. And it's hard for me to point the finger at anybody else and go, you're broken, you need to be dealt with, but I'm broken and need forgiveness. Did that mean that I wasn't hurt? Nope. Did it mean that I wasn't right, that I was done wrong? Nope. Didn't change the fact of that at all. What it did is it repostured my own heart. Not to just show mercy, but to love it. I wish I could tell you that was easy. And I wish I could tell you that is 
something that um, is elementary. But that's grown folks, mature, walking with the Lord stuff right there. Not showing mercy. We should do that. But to love it. Because that deals not with my, oh, sure, I'll check that off and do it. It deals with the position and the posture and the impurity that's in my own heart. <clears throat> like Jonah, I wanted my enemy to get the full force of God's punishment. And like God, consistently like he does, he was looking for a way to show compassion, grace, and mercy, and forgive. Next on your notes, when we show mercy, we're being obedient. Obedient. But when we love mercy, we have a heart that is being shaped how God desires. Psalms 118.29 says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His mercy endures forever. His mercy endures forever. The last line, when we love mercy, we are doing what God wants.